Hello and welcome to 75 Card Pickup, a Magic the Gathering podcast. Uh, joining me is Magic Online grinder Baker Neenan, better known by his Mako name, VTCLA, and I am Nick Prince. How are you doing, Baker? I'm doing all right. We finally got our new cards to look at, and I guess we should just start talking about the cards. Yeah, absolutely. So I assume that we should just start with the first two that we got, which are Nahiri, Heir of the Ancients, and Jace, Mirror Mage. Yeah, so Nahiri is two red-white for a four-loyalty planeswalker, plus one, make a one-one white core warrior creature token. You may attach an equipment you control to it. Minus two, dig top six for a warrior or equipment, put it into your hand. And minus three, deal damage to target creature or planeswalker equal to twice the number of equipments you control. So this is... I think probably mostly commander bait. People have tried to like come up with shenanigans involving it finding either Embercleave or Winota, but I don't think a format of card selection spell is really what Winota or Embercleave are in the market for, even if this can make one ones on the side. And you'd really rather just be playing like large creatures to put your Embercleave on or small creatures, like cheap creatures for Winota to, tr- to trigger off of much more than this card. So I, I would imagine this doesn't see much splash and constructed. If, if it had an ultimate, I think this would be like kind of a legitimate threat that you could see people sideboarding into, where you just like tick up to make a 1-1 one, one every turn, but there's no real payoff at the end of that. You can just like switch gears and instead of making a 1-1, one, one, give up a decent chunk of loyalty to try it and draw a real card, but the type of cards you have access to are pretty specific since you only get warriors as like actual threats. And are you really just putting a ton of equipment in your deck to try and like, how many equipment do you expect to have in play for this minus three? Like maybe one, right? In a constructed deck, you're not putting eight equipment in. So I think pretty clearly this is going to be chaff. So let's move to Jace Mirror Mage. Jace Mirror Mage is interesting in that we see the return of kind of like non-loyalty abilities on Planeswalkers yet again. Uh, They really like this design space, apparently. He's one blue-blue for legendary Planeswalker Jace. Kicker two, when Jace enters the battlefield, if Jace was kicked, create a token that's a copy of Jace Mirror Mage, except it's not legendary and its loyalty is one instead. You can plus one to scry two, and zero, draw a card and reveal it. Remove a number of loyalty counters equal to that card's converted mana cost from Jace Mirror Mage. By default, this is kind of a weird card to evaluate, mostly because the context of what the rest of your deck looks like actually somewhat informs how powerful he is. Like, this card is much more effective in a deck with all cheap cards than a deck that is playing more of that, say, Bant or Simic ramp style where you're accelerating up to like an Ugin because anytime you flip something that costs five, he's just dead on the spot. That mostly makes it so that I'm looking to maybe pair this with stuff like Brazen Borrower and some cheap tempo cards, maybe be in red and be like a red-blue aggro deck or something like that. And maybe this makes it more of a sideboard card in those strategies, but in terms of evaluating the baseline, I guess, is the, the main thing to look at. You you definitely need to get, like, two drawn cards off of him. Or, like, draw a card and your opponent spins a card killing it. Like, if if, if he draws a card and then they dread bore it, that's a two-for-one. We're, we're happy with those. But if he just draws a card and then dies, especially if they don't have combat damage involved, then you would be much better off just having played like a divination so i think you really want to be careful about like limiting the average cmc of your deck when building with jace in mind uh the kicker too does give some extra value late game so that does make him a little bit more enticing and kind of more mana hungry decks that might have more top end but i think generally you're you're going to want to be focusing on zeroing him rather than plus oneing him because while you can set up ways to avoid losing much loyalty by using the plus one to kind of stack your deck a little bit so that he's only drawing cheap cards, 
that does come at a cost if you're it only works if you leave both cards on top so if you're leaving bad cards on top to keep his loyalty high what are you really accomplishing and also that he's just not generating card advantages quickly at that point and if you just like play him in plus one him and they murder Strider him you're just down a card they just have this two three left over and you have a scry two and you're i don't think you you won in that exchange I mean, it is nice that if you are able to kick this Jace, then you can use the copy to stack the top of your deck so that you're drawing cards that aren't going to hurt him too much. Or you can, and you can do kind of weird things where you're using one to remove loyalty counters from the other almost. That said, it's a lot of setup to build just a Phyrexian Arena. And I feel like there's probably just better ways to do this. Like, I keep coming back to, like, well, what kind of deck wants. This sort of like mix up card advantage type thing. Cause I don't think like a pure control deck really wants this that much. I think like that, like a blue red deck is exactly what I'm thinking of. But then I'm struggling to think like, well, if would I want this or the Royal Scions more? Like the Royal Scions kind of like lets you do the same sort of thing where you filter through your deck fairly quickly and then it builds to an ultimate that actually is scary. Yeah, Jace is going to be a lot better in terms of. If your opponents have direct removal for Planeswalkers, Royal Scions looks a lot better in terms of if your opponent has minimal ways to deal chip damage, and so they're maybe attacking it for one or turn, and Scions kind of can just shrug that off and keep looting or pumping, whereas Jace cares a lot about that, but Jace looks a lot better into any type of, say, Eliminate, Murderous Rider, any, any hero's downfall effect. So that's kind of be, I think, his main goal is if your opponent is forced to just trade resources one for one because of how their deck is operating, Jace looks pretty good. Maybe that makes him more of a sideboard card. I, I think in terms of building around him in control decks, it's going to look a lot like when Narset Parter of Veils first came out in War of the Spark, and people were playing a lot of it in Modern and trying to find the tools to make use of it a lot of it looked like playing as much cheap removal spells as you could i saw people just like splashing lightning bolt in blue white control decks just so that they could keep the board clear early because keeping that little bit of chip damage off your narset was so big and that applies to jace as well where if you just want to be pairing this with one mana removal as much as possible so you can kill their two drop cheaply maybe deploy another thing and then be ready with your jace to like zero it let it take two but not have anything on the board right when you played it hopefully and that's one appeal to blue red is that with stuff like shock and bone crusher giant or brazen bar or two in any color you have an easy route to like passing on your two mana turn remove whatever they play and then untap and slam a jace with nothing contesting it so that you're gonna get guaranteed at least the two zeros off and potentially more depending on how the top of your deck cooperates uh if you're able to present more removal and so forth but i think this is kind of more of a blue red or blue black card than a blue white card to some extent just because you want to keep the little creatures off jace's back as much as possible cheap blockers work here too people were playing wall of omens with narset and that's kind of a similar effect here but I don't know of many good cheap blockers in standard that I'm actually excited to put in my deck, but that is something to keep an eye out for as well for Jace. I gotta see how this one plays out. He's kind of a weird card, and I wouldn't be surprised if he also just doesn't do a whole lot. Yeah, we'll we'll have to see how this one plays for sure. And I think a lot of the new cards will potentially inform how good this is. Like, we talked about one-mana removal being good with them. They printed a hell of a one-mana removal spell, so Blood Chief's Thirst is a single black for a sorcery. It has kicker two and a black. It says destroy target creature or planeswalker with CMC two or less. And if the spell was kicked, instead destroy target creature or planeswalker. So this is kind of like the new fatal push. So sorcery instead of instant is definitely a major step down. We talked about how instants in particular were kind of nice with Jace in that type of play patterns and that's not something that's just true of jace but with planeswalkers and your life total in general where being able to like stagger your removal turns is really nice but overall this is just very cheap just being able to 
trade up on mana with your opponent's two drop is pretty nice. And then what this does really nicely is be a very main deckable thing that targets cheap aggro creatures very efficiently, but isn't dead against the, the bigger decks. So like before, you'd have this problem where if you put a bunch of fatal pushes in your deck to not die to Bomat Courier, then when your opponent plays a Teferi Hero of Dominaria, you just want to cry because you have all these fatal pushes that have no text. And Bloodtooth Thirst plays both ways pretty nicely, where a 4-mana sorcery to destroy a Planeswalker is not really that great, to be fair. Like, this is like a very nerfed Frasca's Contempt. But just having that option is a huge deal, and it's going to mean that you are able to keep a lot more of a check on the cheap aggro decks without committing hard to doing so, like you have for the last couple years, where you would have to commit to cards like Disfigure if you wanted to be able to kill one drop or a two drop with any kind of real efficiency. So... This is going to be, I think, a pretty big player in terms of keeping the aggro decks down and also maybe keeping mana dorks down because that's something that's been true of a lot of the, the mana dorks is that they kind of get a free pass by people not wanting to play cheap removal. So this is going to be a pretty big deal against something like Gilded Goose or to get a little sneak preview in our next topic, Lotus Cobra. Yeah, Bloodshoes Thirst is very good if it were an instant, it would be probably one of the best removal spells that they've ever printed. Uh, as it is, it is only just incredibly powerful in standard. I don't know how much of an impact it'll make into older formats. I guess, like, weirdly, it probably makes more of an impact in his in Historic than Pioneer. Um, but it's possible that Blood Chief's Thirst could show up in kind of older formats than that. Um, the flexibility is huge. Like, We've played Disfigure, we've played Deadweight, we've played similar cards, and this one actually upgrades, which makes it so much easier to actually play in your main deck. Not only that, this hits all creatures that cost two or less. Like, the biggest problem with Disfigure and Deadweight and those sorts of cards that we usually see in Standard is that those actually sometimes miss one-drops. This don't. This doesn't miss. <laughs> like a two-three, they're Thorn Lieutenant type creature, which I'm sure we're gonna see some two-three for two mana because green always gets one. It feels like, and it's been a minute. That that dies just as easily. Bronze, Bronze Hide Lion or whatever. The three-three is gonna die just in case anybody felt like playing a efficient two-drop. Get that idea right out of here. Yeah, and this is actually going to inform, like you said, like what kind of threats people are interested in playing. It's We already saw this with Fatal Push, but the presence of Blood Cheese Thirst makes three drops a lot better than they otherwise would be because it kind of escapes the breakpoint. And now a three drop costs four mana to kill, whereas a two drop costs one mana to kill. That's obviously a huge deal, which I think is really nice, just like having incentive to play a little bit further up the curve. So I'm looking forward to Blood Cheese Thirst's impact. I think we'll see something similar you know what my least favorite thing about this card is what it is yet another reason to make uro a more attractive choice like <laughs> well if you want to talk about cards that pair well with uro let's get back to that <laughs> to that foreshadowing and talk about lotus cobra then lotus cobra is a reprint it's one green for a creature snake with landfall whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control add one mana of any color and it's a two one so the original way that you used Lotus Cobra was to absolutely burst ahead in mana on turn three, where if it survived, where you went from two mana to play a fetch land, you get a third mana, fetch the land, you get a fourth mana, and then you can tap it. And so now you can play a five drop on turn three because your, your Goblin Piker lived, basically. We don't have fetch lands, thankfully. Uh, we do have Fabled Passage, but Fabled Passage doesn't actually work particularly well with Lotus Cobra because it just lets you go from two to four, which makes it like a Paradise Druid that doesn't have Hexproof. Not exactly where you want to be. Fabled Passage is the same as any other land in that respect. Right, exactly. In, in later turns, you can then go from like, you know, on turn four, you can go from like four mana to six mana or whatever, but that's not that's not as impressive. You can do that in kind of a lot of ways, and there's just like, three and four drops that do functionally similar things that aren't vulnerable to removal. That said, if there were, say, an explore-type effect 
that existed. You could probably do some silly things on turn three by, say, casting this explore-type card, putting a Fabled Passage into play, and then cracking it, and now suddenly you have four mana uh, available on turn three after you've cast a three-drop. Yeah, and even if you don't have Fabled Passage, this does essentially mean you get to go three-drop into three-drop with Lotus Cobra and Arrow. And that is something... We, we talk about these, like, nutcases with Lotus Cobra, but it is important to understand that these nutcases have to exist for Lotus Cobra to be good. Because, like, like you talked about, if you compare this to Paradise Druid, this is a Paradise Druid that just can get killed by whatever removal spell your opponent has, and can just not make mana sometimes if you don't have a land. Like, we've all been there where we have a Paradise Druid and no third land, and we're just, like, casting a three-drop the next turn. Lotus Cobra won't let you do that. So it is very crucial for Lotus Cobra because, by default, it is much worse than even Paradise Druid. Paradise Druid isn't broken. Paradise Druid is fine. It's, like, an above-average mana dork. It doesn't even, like, crack play into something like Pioneer. So for Lotus Grower to be good, you have to have abuse cases because it's not the most consistent thing out there. So when we're looking for those abuse cases, Uro is one. Fable Passage kind of helps. There's definitely spots where it is better and worse. You can look at something like Migration Path, maybe, where that lets you play another two-drop after it, although their old question always has to be, like, what two-drop am I playing after this? Because... You don't necessarily have another good two mana ramp spell now that rampant or now that growth spiral is gone. While it does have some potential for like explosive starts, we need to make sure that there is enough of those there. I think with Uro and Fable Passage, that that is approximately enough, provided you're willing to play these really high land count decks. Because like if you're playing, if you're just playing like those two abuse cases and that's it, and Uro isn't like the most extreme of an abuse case. So if you're just looking at those and you were and you're trying to play this in like a 24 land deck, then Lotus Cobra is going to be a vanilla two one too often for my liking. But if you're willing to put like 28 30 lands in your deck, which was certainly true at plenty of points last standard, we'll have to see how true that still is in a world without Hydroid Crisis, in a world without some of the card advantage engines. We still have Uro obviously, which helps a lot with that type of thing. But Lotus Cobra is not as good with Uro as, say, Grossbarrow was in terms of fueling it, because it likes to stay in play instead of going to the graveyard. So we'll, we'll see how how hard we're able to push the land count on these decks. If you're still able to play 28-30 lands, Cobra is probably still going to be quite good. If that starts to be a sketchier proposition, and we're looking at like 25-26 as the high end of the land count, then those the downside of Cobra starts to creep in more, and unless we find more ways to abuse that landfall ability to get it triggering multiple times a turn, I don't think that this is going to be like taking over Sand. I think this is going to be like a below average mana dork. So that's just something to keep an eye on for future spoilers. I think that it is unlikely to be broken. I assume that if they chose to reprint this, that they kind of, they looked for the obvious abuse cases, so there won't be anything too too absurd and even then the last time that it was legal it saw play but it took a while to be able to kind of crack the code of how to actually use it in that standard it wasn't good right out the gates it was mostly just referred to as magical christmas land most of the time until people kind of finally found the right builds so if it's good it will i'm assuming that it will also take a little bit to discover exactly how and it might be a little bit more situational with how the meta game develops but i'm excited for the card certainly lotus cobra should not be as insane as it was last time where people were going like noble hierarch into lotus cobra into fetchland primeval titan or inferno titan or whatever that that is certainly not the type of curve that we have access to now. The type of explosive Lotus Cobra draws you have are going to be a lot more piecemeal, where you're just playing like a three drop and a four drop is like the nut draw, and that's good. But like when the three drop was also a ramp spell that's not developed into the board, you can see how it might be beatable depending on say which four drop that is. I which. Speaking of which, the next card on the spoiler is a four drop that might go well with Lotus Cobra. Do you, do you want to tell us about Omnath Locus of Creation? 
Sure, it is red, green, white, blue, because Omnath picked up a fourth color. Legendary creature, elemental. When Omnath enters the battlefield, draw a card, and then landfall. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, you gain four life if it's the first time. If it's the second time, you add his colors of mana, red, green, white, blue, or their colors of mana. If it's the third time, Omnath deals four damage to each opponent and each planeswalker you don't control. Before we talk about Omnath in too much detail, we need to talk about the lands. Because we list lost shock lands, and so you might think that a four-color card would be hard to cast. But they also, on the first day, revealed the land cycle to us, so we get some more information. So it's a cycle of six. They're called pathways. They're double-sided lands, and each side taps for a color, and you can just play whichever side you want. And importantly, both sides have no downside. They don't say basic or mountain or whatever on them, but so they won't, like, you can't like cultivate them for them or whatever, but otherwise they're just two basics in one. You just get to put a mountain and a plains in the same slot and decide which one you want it to be. It's kind of like a flooded strand that doesn't cost you a life and doesn't require you to put a plains or an island in your deck. So these are kind of just insane because the cost is free. So the the colors that we got are also funky, so we need to talk about that. We have a green one that flips into a white one, a red that flips into green, white that flips into black, blue that flips into red, red that flips into white, and blue that flips into black. It is important to mention which color is the front, because when you arrow in a, one of these lands, you are stuck with the front side. You can only play the backside from your hand when you're playing a land, like your land for turn or off of explore or whatever. But if you're like gross spiraling or arrowing or whatnot, you have to play, play the front side. So that can be tricky for mana bases. Don't worry about that too much. But the gist is, if you want if you want to play like a teamer deck, but you really like the idea of Omnath, you can just play four of the green-white duel and four of the red-white duel and you just have eight white sources for no cost. The cost was that you put four basic forests and four basic mountains in your deck when you're not casting Omnath. But by the way, you also get to put four of the blue-red land in there, and four of the red-green land in there, so you get kind of two more duels there. So that's like 16 duels you get towards casting Omnath, and none of them will ever intertapped. They will never cost you life. They will never do anything they bad to you other than maybe not tap for both colors which can matter if you're going like ham if you're if like if you want to put genesis ultimatum in your deck that costs green green blue 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 red red and you put a basic planes into play or a non-basic planes into play face down then yeah that can like slightly go up the works there but Otherwise, like the cost to dipping into a fourth color or just a third color, like if you're just playing, like we could talk the other color combinations, like if you're just playing, say, blue-white, you can just add a black splash really easily because you could get a, a blue-black and a white-black land, and so you just add like four Fable Passage in one swamp, and that's 13 black sources, which is enough for a two-drop at the grand total cost of playing one, one swamp and having to put Fable Passages then. Like, that's such a low cost to putting a mana base together that you're going to have a really heavy incentive in this standard format to stretch your colors wide, not deep. And cards like Omnath are, in fact, far more trivial to cast, I think, than people realize, and maybe just easier to cast than, say, a card like Anax that costs one red-red. You're like red green deck might have more trouble casting Anax than it does casting Omnath because of how ridiculous these lands are in terms of how trivial it is to add fixing. Yeah, I mean it's important to note too that we still have the triomes and like so Omnath gets to just play eight triomes if it wants. Also, it gets to play some number of temples if it wants. You get Fabled Passage, which is functionally a four color land in any deck that is just playing enough basics to support that. 
it's it's actually pretty easy to to play a card like Omnath uh, or anything along those lines, like any of the three color cards that aren't super heavy commitments, like the ultimatums, like you said. Uh, if you're just making single pips of mana, your mana is going to be excellent. Now, what's interesting is something like Uro is actually going to be uh, escaping him in a deck like that is going to be tough. While these dual lands are very powerful, you do give up a long game power of having several of each of your main colors. Uh, and so you're going to have to kind of build with that in mind, which will be interesting, kind of as a puzzle. I, I think it ends up less interesting than you think, because something you pointed out where you all, like, you also have access to the Triumphs of Temples. And normally, the problem with adding a bunch of temples or triumphs to a deck that already has a bunch of duels in it is that each each progressive tap land that you add to your deck gets is worse and worse because it becomes more likely that you have multiple tap lands screwing up your curve at points where like maybe you can fit the first tap land in your curve at low or no cost because you weren't going to use that one mana anyway but every time you add another tap land it becomes less and less likely that that's true you can build a mana base where the triumphs are the only tap land in your deck and still cast four color cards with ease so and like what this doesn't necessarily scale as well down to two colors because then you just actually run out of total duels so we're still going to have the same issue in say green red as we did in previous formats where like temples kind of suck in your aggro deck, so you only have one good duel, and this good duel is less powerful than shocks if you actually just don't care that much about your life total because you're playing rule. But in terms of like in these multicolor decks, I it as you get to the later stages of the game, I think it kind of just balances out anyway, because if you're looking at a card like Uro, when you cast Uro, you tend to have a lot of mana that you're not tapping for Uro, at least in standard, where you don't have access to a bunch of stuff like fetch lands to turbo fuel the graveyard, because typically you're playing you're escaping Uro with at least seven lands in play. So you can just have three of these lands that you turn to the other side for whatever purpose and and are not on green blue mode and still just cast Uro pretty easily, I think. So I I don't think that it's actually going to be that difficult as long as you are sticking to your main color mostly and just using these to free roll splash colors. So if you're trying to operate with like a blue black deck where four of these are like your main duels, it gets a little trickier. But even then, I don't know, the optionality of, of flipping the two means that unless you're really stretching your mana cost, these shouldn't be a huge deal. This does push you away from casting one CC cards or especially CC cards. So like anything that costs black black is going to be scary. One black black is scary if you're trying to play two colors. But I, I, I think this is like the the later in the game you go, the cost, the the likeliness that these are screwing you over just drops dramatically as you are able to just tap them for generic. I agree with you that I think that splashing is going to be the best thing that this enables. The fact that it is an, it is a source of untapped mana on turn one is particularly useful, and I think that you can build your deck around it. Like say in, I mean, let's just go to white which is a color that's going to be inclined to have one drops anyway. If you are able to build a mana base that is taking advantage of having one drops early and like your splash colors are higher up the curve, I think that that is something that that a deck would want. Some sort of Mardu land that's just like heavily white splashing red and black might work, but we'll we'll have to find out based on what's actually in the set. Yeah, when you mention mono white splash in red and black that's actually a thing that's like happened relatively recently too right like I, where were mono white decks splashing bomat courier and scrap heap scrounger and this is kind of another way to do that which is why these lands are probably destined to see some play in pioneer and i think probably modern too especially in decks that aren't necessarily reliant on fetch lands for mana bases like this is going to be, the green-white one's going to be a huge deal for, say, any Leonin Arbiter decks that are wanting to play Noble Hierarch slash Collected Company. The blue-red one's going to be a huge deal for, like, Storm that doesn't want to overload on fetches or play any at all sometimes. And there's probably some more decks in that vein that are relatively interested in these. They're definitely worse than just, like, a fetch land for a shock land a lot of the time, and, like, in they're 
value in three color decks gets lower once you have like that powerful of fixing where once you're comparing them to untapped tri lands then the fact that these are free starts to diminish in value compared to just like how much raw output you're getting from fetch lands and stuff so they won't i don't think these are going to like take over modern anything but their low cost is going to be a huge deal in formats like pioneer and historic as well so we'll we'll see that a lot i would imagine like even maybe that example i might be looking to cast toolcraft exemplar off of these and then maybe if i have enough white sources look to drop one on the backside so i can start recurring scrap heap scrounger over and over against control decks and not have to lose any life in the process whereas before that was one of the big issues with something like mana confluence in decks like that was you would lose a lot of equity in aggro mirrors so i expect these to be pretty powerful in older formats as well i mean how good does the mana suddenly look for like an aggressive enemy colored deck that's not simic or golgari like if you're looking at pioneer in you can have you know in say a, a boros deck the red white land from this set whatever the pathways are called the the fast land a pain land like you have basically just perfect mana without right like the fact that you hit your color requirements without before you hit your land requirement because even an aggressive deck that's pretty low to the ground is going to want to play more than 16 lands like i don't know what your last four lands are they're probably just two of each basic or whatever and even if your curve is that low you're you should never have color problems not even once they might as your cards might like might as well all be colorless at that point we might even see people playing like th this is one of the weird things about this too right like the red black one doesn't exist yet they tease that the other ones were quote coming very soon so maybe that just means in the viking set in three months if you're playing red white burn in pioneer with Luris as your companion you should just play four of the red black one because sometimes you can play on the backside to cast Luris, and otherwise it's just completely free, which is the thing that I dislike so much about these, is it, there's no interesting deck-building question about weighing whether to put this in your deck or not. You just do. And, like, the most interesting thing about these from deck-building is, like, okay, well, now that I've put all of these free-roll lands in my deck, what does the rest of my mana base look like? Like, that's supposed to be the interesting decision, but I don't think that ends up being particularly interesting. It just, it probably makes that decision much easier, because your mana is so good already from all of the free sources you have, that it probably doesn't end up being that hard to put together the rest of it. So, I, I think these are going to be problematic in Standard. I am guessing that these may cause issues in terms of the color pie because it will become very easy to just put counter spells in your white green deck for instance like that will just become kind of a trivial thing to start doing well, not specifically white green at least well i guess eventually yeah no you're right eventually not, yeah right like whatever to, to just say something like that or like maybe to, it becomes way too easy to put cheap room cheap red removal in your blue green deck right that's a thing that could happen right now like right now if you're just a simic deck that wants to splash red you just got eight free sources and none of them are un are tapped on turn one or two so right if you wanted to play something that's just like very euro focused and just splash this red so that you can interact on turn two because otherwise that's supposed to be the weakness of simic is that you don't have good cheap interaction but now you can just have that. So we're losing the shock lands. Like, are these are these more egregious for what you're saying than just the shock lands? Yeah, because you can't put twelve shock lands in your deck. Like, well, you can, but you have to meet it. Like, that's gonna hurt. You can just take a deck that already has four of these and just add sixteen more to splash two colors and not care at all. I think it's very possible that if we have the full cycle of 10, that you start seeing mana bases with like 20 of these. Because there's no extra cost to adding more. Yeah, they do stack very well compared to the, the shock lands, because you, you can't exactly shock yourself five times, I guess. Whereas like, so like three color is like the maximum that you would do, but in say like a four color deck, you really could just play six times four is 24 of these and have 
probably no mana problems, assuming that you draw them in the right way, or don't just like suddenly get screwed out of a color. Like I, I could definitely just see that happening. Of like, sick, like if you, if we get to like all of these being legal, just having like an Omnath deck to return back to the original point. That's like twenty four of these and four triumphs, and that's your mana base. And it's like okay, like. I have four tap lanes in the entire deck, and I probably have good enough colors. Like, maybe you have to tweak it from there. Maybe you don't play 24, and you play, like, 18 or 16, and so you can fit in, like, some a couple Fable passages and some basics or something. But, like, as a general rule, you can just keep adding more of these at no cost. And so it's going to make just, like, going to these three- and four-color decks, like, super easy. Yeah, I guess, like, I'm just thinking for, like, an Omnath deck, you probably just play eight Triomes because having some tap lands isn't that... When you know everything else isn't hurting you and everything else, you'll get to choose which colors you actually really need and whatever, you can just play eight Triomes, take the fact that you're not going to have a one-drop or whatever, just, you know, that's fine, this is your one-drop, and then play most of your other lands as untapped of whatever source you need that turn. Say you're playing, like, Bardu Winota, and, like, one of your Winota targets is Kenrith. You can just put a bunch of, like, blue-black flip lands and a bunch of white-green flip lands in there so that you can just free-roll being able to activate Kinra's other modes when it's convenient for you. So it's, like, the question of, do I put this in my deck? Is like, I don't know, did you have, do you have literally any basics in there? And is there literally any reason whatsoever to not do that? And even if you don't have any reason not to do that, now does this just mean that every, like, white deck is supposed to be playing cutting four basic planes for four of the the white black pathways so that they can bluff being decks that aren't white like white red for instance like now your white red deck could be mardu winota and your opponent doesn't know so like it seems quite possible that you're supposed to just jam eight of these in literally every deck regardless of if you're even intending to use them and like the only counter the only loss is like convenient access to castles because these don't have types. That is a real cost if you aren't actually getting something out of it. So maybe if you're playing, like, straight blue-white control, you're not going to play, like, 16 of these because you want to put a couple castles in your deck. But if you aren't really capable or interested in castles to begin with, then the cost of these is, like, what? one less land to get off of like a field of ruin that doesn't exist in the format like what's what's the actual cost it's zero so you maybe are just supposed to just like jam 12 of these in there just for bluff equity so that your opponent doesn't know what what deck you're playing when you play your second land drop so the other reason that you might not want to do this because they are giving you another reason is the other dual faced lands these lands are cards that can be cast as a spell on their front half, but you can also choose to play them as a an, an ETB tap land that makes just one color. So the first one that we saw is Valakut Awakening. Two red, put any number of cards from your hand on the bottom of your library, then draw that many cards plus one. It's an instant, so at the worst case scenario it cycles for three, which isn't terrible, and it has higher upside. And then on the other side, it's just an ETB taps for red land. Um, we've had a few more of these spoiled, and in mul- like at multiple rarities. So we have like a common green one and an uncommon green one. Which and since we've seen a red rare one, Valakut Awakening, we're probably going to have three of these per color. Now, not all of them are probably constructed worthy, but there's one say that was spoiled today called Belaged Recovery. Two green sorcery return target. Cre- card from your graveyard to your hand and then the flip side is a etb green tap land what do you think of these cards i think there tends to be kind of a communal tendency to overrate modal cards so i've seen people comparing these to like companion or the london mulligan when like really we're looking at like a utility land or like basic land cycling is what's going on. I mean, I would look at this like a it's almost like a castle. It's another way to get something out of your mana. Kind of the castles are ostensibly very low cost because if you're playing a deck with a bunch of planes in it, you can just swap some of them out for castles and now this is essentially just a planes with a bunch of bonus upside. These 
being tapped is a real cost. Like, introducing extra tap lands, and these also get in the way of castles, for instance. So the question has to be, how reliably are you, like, getting something worthwhile out of the other side? In like, something more valuable than a mana is, is worth. Because every time you play this as a land, you're just, like, down a mana that you just don't get back compared to just playing a normal land. So I like the ones a lot more that are valuable cards later in the game. So the two you mentioned kind of fit that distinction where like Balakid Awakening can at least cycle for a card. Maybe it does like a tormenting voice impression for three mana and you like you cycle a couple other dead cards away and get three cards back. And that's like a pretty powerful thing for your land that you didn't need to do. Whereas some of the other ones we've seen, like one is a discard spell that's like three mana, or it's like two and a black. Target opponent reveals their hand, you choose a card for it with CMC three or greater, that player discards that card. So this card is a land or a spell, but... A tap land after, like, turn four is probably useless, and this discard spell after, like, turn four is probably also useless. So how modal is it really, especially because the card that you're playing on turn three really isn't that exciting? So, like, is there some value to the modality here? Yes, but it's not really that extreme. Whereas the cards that, like, naturally address Flood Screw better are the ones that are useful later because generally you're going to be mana screwed early and mana flooded late just because of how the game engine works so again the one you mentioned where that is essentially a regrowth two in a green sorcery return target card from your graveyard to your hand balaged recovery that is much more compelling if you're willing to play the sanctuary on turn one and the recovery later Granted, if you're trying to put, like, Gilded Goose in your deck, or multiple tap other tap lands so that this stacks poorly, then this gets worse, certainly. You would, you, like, if, if this is putting you off curve, it's kind of a disaster. But the ability to turn this into a real card later is something. Granted, three mana to replace this with a card from your graveyard is a lot, especially if you're arrowing away a lot of the cards from your graveyard. Where where I like these is as those 27th and 28th lands. Like, when we're already at a high land count and we've taken care of all of our other requirements and we're looking for something that can act as more land drops if we need them, but also give us utility for the late game when we probably will need that because we're playing 28 29 30 lands whatever we need to have we need to be able to get a little bit more out of our mana base when it's half of our deck like these feel quite strong and specifically i really like belaged recovery because the type of deck that wants to play that many lands is going to have powerful effects they're going to be the decks that are running sweepers and planeswalkers that are large and likes okay so they dealt with ugin one type type thing and i have a million lands in play and i draw this and it's like okay well now you have to deal with it a second time or whatever those sorts of scenarios are where i look at a card like Belegated recovery and it's like yeah a big deck wants this sort of card as as one of its utility lands for the the late late game and that's that is very attractive to me as an option i think it's a little trickier to make use of that Yes, when you think about, like, oh, I want to put a card in my hand, it's like, well, what if it's a really expensive card? It sounds appealing. The, the main issue you get into is when you're on the full tap all of my mana for the most expensive card possible plan, then what that looks like for Balagan Recovery a lot is you pay three to put the card back in your hand, and then you pass. And you have to wait a turn to actually cast it. And that makes it a lot harder to actually leverage the upside because if you have to wait a turn to get your Ugin back, one, that means they might just cast another discard spell and put it back in your graveyard. Or two, it just means you could you could die while you're waiting for it. Or you could not get to make use of your opening before they get a counter spell back up or whatever. Or similarly, if you are just waiting in order to be able to cast your big effect first, then 
until you've actually cast your big effect, that this thing is just sitting there useless, staring at, like, a ramp spell or two in your graveyard, like, well, I don't do anything yet. And that's the main problem with this one, is, like, until you've, like, if you haven't actually drawn and cast and gotten into the graveyard some big effect or something, like, worthwhile, this thing doesn't do anything yet. Now, I still think, you you mentioned 27th, 28th land. I'm maybe even further, like, 31st, 32nd land. Like, yeah, throw in a Balagad recovery or two, because I, I want, uh, that modality is still somewhat desirable to me. But it is worth cautioning that, like, your graveyard doesn't always have what you want in it. So, especially if you don't have, like, a lot of high-impact stuff in your deck. This is going to be a little more excited to see more mid-range stuff to some extent. Like, if this is looking at something Tireless Tracker-esque, then you get to maybe pick it up and play it right away, and later in the game, maybe Elder Gargaroth helps this nicely, where if that's, like, a, a reasonably large, like, high-impact efficient threat that you can, like, on turn 8 pick up your dead Gargaroth and play it again. Yeah, I mean, the one that I had in mind specifically is pick up a Shatter the Sky. It's not hard for some of these decks to get to 7 mana, and then Belaged Recovery is just extra copies of Wrath against the aggro decks. Yeah, certainly that that one is is more appealing. Like if just looping back spells is always. I should have I should have not said pick up Ugin because I think that that brought us down a, a, a wrong path. I think the most common use case for this is going to be recur extinction event or recur shatter the sky or recur, you know, whatever the three mana drain spell that probably is going to be in white black is against the aggro deck or pick up my silly planeswalker or whatever something like oh yeah recur plane recur counter spell is great that's just a thing. It's kind of why Mystic Sanctuary is busted as hell in Modern, and the Witch's Cottage just sees no play, basically. Picking up spells is going to be a lot better than picking up threats, so this is going to be a lot more appealing in more defensive green decks, which maybe means just more controlling Bant stuff like you were talking about earlier, and also can just mean it's a lot better in post-board games, almost to the extent I might be looking to like leave one of these in my sideboard sometimes where like if the games get more interactive and i want to like if i'm boarding in a bunch of counter spells in a matchup and this is just like probably pretty crappy in game one where i'm not getting that much out of it that often because i'm only recurring threats and i'd maybe rather just spend my mana on another threat rather than spending my mana on recurring some threat and like being out three mana once you start inter- introducing, like, okay, we're going to play a lot more of a grindy game, then maybe I'm more interested in something like this. So I, I think that's that's pretty interesting as well. But yeah, I, I think low counts of Bolligid Recovery are going to be pretty compelling in these, like, super high land count decks, but it's important to keep, like, low counts of these in mind. You don't want to have a million tap lands, and you probably are going to need some amount of stuff like Triumphs or Temples or Fabled Passage that you're willing to play on turn one in order to fix your mana, because while the pathways are very cheap to include, they also do not fix your mana a ton in terms of just your baseline usage. So you probably do need some tap lands, because that's the only other thing we have to fix your mana base. So the cost on these is going to get pretty big as you start to add more than the first or second copy. All right. Well, I want to talk about my favorite card that I've spoiled so far, because it's right up my alley which is Archpriest of Iona. It is a one-drop creature for white. Archpriest of Iona's power is equal to the number of creatures in your party. And party is a cleric, rogue, warrior, and wizard. You get to count up to four creatures of a, un- of a unique type of those four. So if you have... So like one of each, basically. Yeah, if you have one cleric, one rogue, one warrior, one wizard, you have a full party, you get all four of whatever it's counting, or if it says full party, you have those. You have to have four different creatures, changelings can't be all of them, or whatever. And then it says at the beginning of your combat on your turn, if you have a full party, target creature gets plus one, plus one, and gains flying. Until end of turn. This card, on its own, is a one-two, which is not the most impressive thing on the planet. However, it quickly upgrades into Isamaru by just like playing basically any two drop. Uh, they have done a very good job of seeding in clerics, rogues, warriors, and wizards. Like Seasoned Hallowed Blade, for example, is a warrior. Robber of the Rich is a rogue. There are 
Uh, I haven't actually done the wizard check necessarily, but blue-white mana seems like it's probably going to be a little tougher, tougher anyway. Um, and it itself is a cleric. So it is pretty easy to get this thing up to a 2-2 on turn 2, which is a card that we've played that's been a very good aggressive white one drop before and then if you can build your deck in such a way that you also have access to warrior into all four types this card starts adding up damage very quickly i love this as a one drop i think that it is a nice return to white actually getting a powerful <laughs> a powerful aggressive creature which we haven't had for a minute uh and i am excited to try and make the party thing work as part of an aggro deck yeah i think one issue you will run into is that mana base for two color decks that are very aggressive and uninterested in tap lands is pretty awful at the moment because you have one decent duel in the pathways and it's not the most amazing duel and then you have temples after that where you can play like a like a Jeskai triome or something or a fabled passage like that's the best you can do at that point. So it's going to be tough to put together a two color deck, I think. This thing as a 2/2, two -two, I, I think basically the way you want to evaluate a lot of these party cards is it's very difficult to actually achieve a full party. For a couple reasons. One is that it just requires that you have four creatures in play. There's definitely times when winning more is good and important even, where like being able to shut the door, like stuff like Anthem Effects and whatever, like are all by definition win more, but still regularly see constructed play because killing your opponent faster before they turn the corner or something is good. So, so this is not to entirely discount the idea that having four creatures in play should just mean you won the game anyway, but having four creatures in play is hard in constructed if your opponent is fighting back and the other thing to keep in mind is you need all four creature types which just because of like statistics is going to be hard to do because you can only put so many of each in your deck even if you assume that you're playing a deck that is just straight up 40 creatures and you have 10 of each type like how likely are you even to draw one of each at that point right that's even the most optimistic scenario but even then you're you're still not going to have all four types that often even just as a goldfish because you don't you're not going to draw all of your types all the time so generally when you're looking at archpriest of iona the goal is going to be to just like follow it up with two drops that are uh, not clerics and are either rogues or warriors or maybe even wizards there are like there's one wizard in white that is the the stupid 1-3 that stops people from casting spells from weird places. Yeah, aggro, our aggro deck is going 1-2 <laughs> into 1-3. We got him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so like that's more of a sideboard card, if anything. Yeah. But like, yeah, mostly it's like you're looking to go like Iona into Seasoned Hallowblade, and this is a 2-2 two -two for one, which is pretty decent. And then if you happen to have some like wizards or rogues up the curve, especially if you are playing a two-color deck down the line. Like something like Rankle in Black-White, for instance, is a nice aggressive curve topper potentially that could go with this. Then this gets to be a 3-2. I don't think it's realistically ever going to be a 4-2 or a 4-2 that's pumping things. But just as a one-mana 2-2, two -two, that's just quite good. I'm just, I'm just, and let's do it. And like the 1-2 isn't the worst of the world. Like that's... If, if you just don't have nothing, it's not like this is useless, you know? I mean, we, we've all attacked with a Soulscar Mage for one. Like, you know, you... I don't think Archpriest of Iona is going to be, like, terrifying people. It is another important tool in that the more good one-drops White has access to, the better it is. And it needs a few of them. And this is one, and that's important and big. But I don't think this is, like the kind of card that strikes fear into people's hearts by itself, the way, say, something like Toolcraft Exemplar was, where that thing would just murder you on its own. And this one's not quite there. It is it is very threatening. It is very much a constructed quality one-drop. You're not going to be sad to put this into your deck, but it's it's a role-player almost. It's, it's kind of... It's like a it's like a B plus. I think that the thing that makes me interested in this card we're playing it in an aggressive deck that's probably playing, say, 
30 creatures, we don't need other clerics. If this is our only party effect in the deck, we only need this one. We can have zero other clerics on the deck. Then you don't actually, and then you say like play like mostly rogues and warriors from there. I think mostly your goal should just be to make this thing a 3-2. Toolcraft Exemplar as a 3-2 is kind of everything we ever wanted out of the card. We never cared that much about the first strike. It came up occasionally. We just wanted to hit people in the face for three. So it'll depend on what else gets printed. I assume that because this is a major theme of the set, that and we've already seen a number of rogues, warriors, and wizards, that we're going to see more. And I'm excited to see if any of them, any of the other ones are also constructed worthy. Because we've already found our, like one very good warrior, which is Season Hallowblade. That deck was all going to play it even if it was like you know a peasant or a soldier or whatever types were last year. So the fact that it happens to work with this is very nice. Yeah, you're not going to get any white rogues. You barely get white wizards. So it's, you're going to have to be two colors to, to get full party, which I don't think you're willing to do, but is possible. So party is pretty sweet. The party card I like the most is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, which is Spoils of Adventure. This is four white-blue for an instant. You gain three life and draw three cards, and it costs one less to cast for each creature in your party. So at six mana, this is essentially rev for three. At five mana, this is a very reasonable, like, constructed card. Like, I think this is just pretty good like i think you're you're not ha unhappy to play five mana to draw three gain three we've played jace's ingenuity before that's just three blue blue draw three yeah this this gains three too which is big and that's if you have a cleric a rogue a warrior or a wizard you just need the one if you have two this is four mana to draw three gain three which i think is better than factor fiction i don't think that's even particularly controversial you're like your your draw three is approximately equivalent and the game three is a huge deal. Then if you get to three, this is just berserk. This is like painful truths, but you gain three instead of losing three, and also it's an instant. And if you get two, this is approximately a power nine level card. But just like mostly the deal is that if you get to four, this is one of the best card draw spells, like instant speed card draw spells they've ever printed. Like, it's, it's not recall level at four, but it is factor fiction level, which is insane. So the question is, how are we getting these creatures, right? So we look at, like, Rogue. Brazen Borrower is a Rogue. Uh, wizard, there's a variety of Wizards. If you start looking in older formats, like in Pioneer, Baral is one in particular that also that makes this cost two less, essentially. Though so I can see stuff like that developing. Uh, you're going to get access to warriors and clerics from white. Even if you're just playing blue-white control, there's going to be a variety of ways. Like Gadwick is, is one that you can fit in as a wizard. I don't have the fullest in front of me, and we're going to get more, as you mentioned. But there's plenty of ways to like follow along a blue-white control shell and just incidentally have some creatures that match these types. And if you just have one, this card is quite good. And if you have two, this card is amazing. But I think this card is potent enough that it's worth just putting in a deck that is not baseline the type of deck that is interested in an instant speed draw spell. I think if you just want to put this in like a Bant deck that just is playing mostly creatures and happens to have a lot of creatures that fulfill the party types, especially something like the... Tajuru Paragon, so that's one in a green for a 3-2 elf that is also a cleric, rogue, warrior, and wizard. It only counts for one of the party, but it counts for whichever one you don't have. So it's always plus one. And it has kicker three. If you if it when it ETBs, if it was kicked, you look at your top six and you can put a card that shares a creature type with it from among them into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library. So it finds an elf, a cleric, a rogue, a warrior, or a wizard if you pay three. And I'm guessing it's pretty likely to find this. So it seems like it's probably draw a spell. But you can just put cards like that in there, and it becomes pretty realistic to just be playing a Bant creature deck and just, like, get to th this costing three without going very far out of your way. And then, yeah, normally when I'm playing a Bant creature deck and you ask me what type of card I want, 
I don't think uh, instant speed card draw spell. But if I'm getting three mana draw three, gain three at instant speed, yeah, I'm going to snap that off. I'm going to play four and I'm going to go a little bit out of my way to enable it because that's just worth it to me. So I think that this is actually just like one of the more potent party payoffs. It hasn't really been getting much press. So I just want to note that one. This is a sleeper pick. Yeah, I mean, the card's quite good. I think that it will see play. The biggest the biggest thing that would cause it not to see play is that white-blue is losing a duel. It's one of the combinations that doesn't isn't going to have worse mana, so we'll see how that impacts things. Green-blue is down a duel. That makes me a little bit wary of like trying to pair it into Bant, so you're going to have to go with, like, like maybe you can do it in um, Asper. Maybe Jeskai is just good enough. Yeah, Jeskai could work. We'll have to see which colors are interested in just, like, how... Like, Bant is kind of the classic, like, I'm just interested to put some creatures around, and then, like, I don't necessarily win the game by having three creatures in play. That's, like, something that's especially true of Bant, because it's, like... Because <laughs> they're all two threes that, that did something when they came into play. They're all just, like, pretty middling creatures that aren't taking the game over, ending things real quick. And so having this as a way to, like draw a bunch of extra cards and either present more midling creatures or maybe some like interaction to go with said midling creatures can be pretty potent but yeah like the you don't have great bat mana because we didn't get a blue green or a blue white duel so that particular combination is not so the most promising we'll have to see what colors get good party members in particular what colors get good party members that are not removal magnets. So while Lotus Cobra isn't a party member, obviously, like that that's the type of card that wouldn't really be that appealing here because your opponent has to kill it anyway. So it's not going to stick around to make your thing cheaper. Whereas something like, say, Acquisitions Expert, it's like one in a black for a one-two human rogue. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, target opponent reveals a number of cards from their hand equal to the number of creatures in your party. You choose one of those cards and they discard it. So that is kind of like a burglar rat early, like on turn two. Maybe it scales up on turn four-ish to be like a black veil attached to a one-two. But the main thing here is that when you play this on turn two, they're probably not going to point a removal spell at it because why would they bother? It's a one-two. It's not doing much. So it gets to like trade for a card and then sit around to make your draw spell cheaper is the type of thing that, that would make this more appealing if you are going further down the creature route. Or maybe even that's just worth it in control route sometimes, especially if you were trying to like play a Urian strategy or something. So that that's gonna be the type of card you want to look out for. The only problem is once you start filling your deck with like all card or all creatures that are just like do a thing that's solid but you know, attached to a body that's not that impressive, you start having like, well, what is your, what are you drawing? With counter spells, draw three. mostly I figure. Yeah, I mean, so then you have to play a bunch of counter spells to go with it, but then and, and like to go with your creatures that you're probably playing on your turn, other than Brazen Bar. Brazen Bar really does feel like it's just so absurd for for this sort of a thing. Yeah, the the there is maybe a missing piece of like what. What cards are you drawing? Because if you just draw all barons all the time, maybe maybe it's not amazing. You're all manowars in not limited. Oh, crap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> manowars we didn't, we didn't do it. <laughs> so, okay. I, I mean, I think that that's the highlights for now. There's. Do you have any other thoughts on the set? On any other specific cards as like a quick hit? Yeah, let's. We'll we'll save some more for later. By which I mean, there's probably more exciting things to come. Oh yeah, we didn't even talk about Nissa. Here, let's not spend time to- too much time talking about Nissa. Nissa, is she good or no? So two black green, four loyalty planeswalker, landfall, put a loyalty counter on her, plus one, untap a land you control, it's a 3-3 three, three with haste and menace until end of turn, and minus five, you may put a creature card with CMC less than or equal to the number of lands you control onto the battlefield from your hand or graveyard with two plus one plus one counters on it, you have to stick her for a turn or play her, then play a land and then cash her in entirely. And if you go for that route, you can also get her just killed in response where if, into the landfall trigger. So kind of tricky to like actually get the minus five off 
I think she's unlikely to be amazing in a world where people have access to removal for planeswalkers. If people can't kill planeswalkers, then she's a lot more promising. I don't know. She's like a bad Eureka. And I don't know. Now, a, a bad Eureka could be amazing still. I'm just not sure how we would use that or what is like impressive enough that we're jumping through these hoops. Most of the power is in the reanimation, not the the Eureka part, because then you're actually going up a card. And then the and the other main appeal is that she just attacks for three menace a turn. Sure. So she's like kind of a, ther- a snare thopter that can then reanimate something. I guess she's like a decent planeswalker assassin is what I came to. I, I think she kind of fits into that, can, that mold of planeswalkers that are much better against control decks than they are against like more aggressive decks. Oh yeah, this is probably a great sideboard card. Yeah, if if you're playing green black and someone's trying to like remove your creatures, this is a threat that gets a little sideways with it in terms of just beating them to death, but then also can just reanimate something from your graveyard and make it huge. So I I think it's like a little bit of value, a little bit of murder and really annoying to deal with is fairly promising. The fact that your 3/3s don't stick around kind of limits it where she's only attacking for three a turn she doesn't get to like stack up value while applying pressure no i'm i'm, I'm good with nisses that don't clog the board with land land creatures anymore i've had enough of that forever if your opponent can't attack her very well and can't point a removal spell at her very well granted that's maybe a lot to ask that they can't do either of those things but then she's going to be a nightmare and if they can only point direct removal at her then there's still ways to like cash in a lot of value potentially with the reanimation so i i think she's promising as a sideboard card but unlikely to be a main deck staple unless we get some very specific tools to make her supported in terms of murdering people yeah i'm just i'm not sold on her i think that if we have this kind of critical break point of like needing to attack for three haste against like planeswalkers then that could be a thing but i'm also struggling to think of what what planeswalkers are actually really gettable when they don't all tick down like this seems like a card that probably would have been solid against the war of the spark planeswalkers who all like tick down to three loyalty for whatever reason but those are rotating so that's a that's where uh i think that's where we're gonna end so uh if you want to find us on twitter we are at seven five card pickup uh, if you want to follow me personally i'm at nick n prince and if you want to follow Baker, he is at VTCLA1 um, because that is the number of party members he's going to have most of the time. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Well, it's I, just crazy. It's just Rogue. <laughs> just the one. You've got, you'll have the Barrens, and then you'll be like, well, nobody ever removes this thing, and then they'll just shock it because they don't have anything else to do with it. Like, okay, <laughs> fine. But Virtual Giant does kind of put a damper on the, well, why would they bother killing it thing? That is a limiting factor on a lot of uh, a lot of the creatures that can see play. Yeah, people were freaking out about how Lotus Kerber was going to be broken. It's like you know how Bone Crusher Giant is still legal, right? Like, yeah, no, I'm, I think the Lotus Kerber is going to be fine. We're all just going to stomp it. We're all just going to stomp this poor snake and then like put out like a stupid four three giant <laughs> and ignore it. All right. Well, until next week. See you, Baker. See ya.